Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, we sit down with Professor Matt Holloway, University of Colorado. We talk about tips for balancing work life and personal life and some things that worked, some things that didn't work. Hopefully you can get a couple of strategies out of here so you can stay sane and productive in your faculty career. Welcome, everyone. We're excited today because we've got Dr. Matthew Hollowell here from University of Colorado, um, someone I've got the opportunity to work with, but we're actually not talking about our collaborations today. We're talking about um, a little bit more of a general topic of just handling life and work and uh, personal life and professional life and juggling kind of all of the responsibilities and life responsibilities that uh, the academic career can throw at you. So, Matt, thank you so much for being here today. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. We're about to get a big snowstorm here, so uh, I'm cozied up inside and, and looking forward to talking to you guys. Good, good. Brian, how's everything going with you today? It's like 82 degrees here and sunny. It's, it's pretty good. <laughs> this is the time. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can brag about having those nice warm, uh, warm weather climates. So. So maybe before we get into talking about work-life balance and just juggling all of the responsibilities that you have to handle as a faculty member, Matt, maybe you could tell us a little bit about you, the professional. Kind of for our listeners, if, if they don't know of you offhand from your work, what do you study? Kind of what's your role at Colorado? Like what are, what are help us contextualize what some of your current expectations are in your professional role. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so I'm a professor here at the University of Colorado. I'm uh, in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering, and in a smaller program, uh, Construction Engineering and Management. So we're housed within the College of Engineering, um, and I've been here since 2008. So uh, it's been a while. Um, I, I did my PhD at Oregon State with John Gambatis, and uh, then came directly here to the University of Colorado, and that's been my my academic position since. Um, currently, I have a pretty typical faculty position where I, I do some teaching. I, I have research obligations or research duties and, and service obligations as well. Um, so pretty standard, uh, you know, faculty position. And so just just for contextualizing this for listeners, we often will talk in terms of the percentage breakdown of sort of research teaching service. What are your general percentages at, at Colorado? Yeah, Colorado, the, the standard is a 40-40-20. So we're 40% research, 40% teaching, and 20% service. Okay. And that teaching component is typically, as a standard, three courses okay. Yeah, per year. Makes sense. And so, um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today is kind of the, the challenges of, of uh, surviving an academic career. You know, let's maybe start at the beginning landing as a first position at the University of Colorado's got to have some challenges because you know you're you're in a pretty major research institution immediately and you see you you don't necessarily have the ramp up years of starting um, either elsewhere at a smaller university or maybe doing a postdoc uh, maybe you did a postdoc I don't know but um, it doesn't sound like based on what you described earlier can you tell us a little about how the transition went like what was that process like for you starting out yeah, that was, boy, I got to think back a little while now. Um, but I, I went, as you said, straight from the PhD program at Oregon State to the University of Colorado. Um, 
at the time, just to give a kind of frame of reference, um, I came here when I was 25. So I, I had finished my degree and I, I came in. So I was a little on the younger side. Um, I was single, uh, no kids, doing my thing, right? So Colorado was appealing to me. I'm originally from Maine and then I went to Oregon and bounced all around and I was I fell in love with Boulder, Colorado. Um, but I, as I started, uh, you know, I was a bit starry eyed and I really honestly didn't know what to expect in many regards. So I just dove in head first and in many ways, you know, a little bit of confidence there, but I was just like, well, I'll make the, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm excited about the position. Um, I obviously like any PhD student had done some research, um, but the expectations were a little higher and there's a lot of uncertainty there, right? You, you, you hope that you can do it and you do your best. And, and you know, I was in the, the mindset, I'll see how it goes. Uh, but it was a pretty big step up for me uh, in terms of what the expectations were for research output, funding, um, the teaching, you know, teaching obligations or teaching requirements were, were quite similar uh, to where I had come from, but just the research um, expectations had, had jumped on me. So um, just to give everybody a little bit of context of where I was in my life, I know some people start with a family. Um, I imagine that's incredibly difficult. Uh, and I didn't have that. I was, I was on my own. So at that point in my life, my time was my own. So if I wanted to work at 10 o'clock on a Saturday and not go out with friends and do more fun things than work, I could do that. Um, yeah, so that was a little bit about where I, where I entered in my own life um, at that time. And the transition from grad school to professor life was, was a little bit smoother for me because, you know, I was just moving my location and, and now the job had changed, but my life hadn't changed all that much yet. If you, if you think of day one, yeah. um, I was still on my own doing my own thing. Oh. I didn't realize you were that young when you started. Yeah, it was, I mean, I went straight through undergrad, master's degree, and, yeah. and then into the PhD. And, and so I was a bit baby-faced at the time. And <laughs> I thought, actually, I thought that was going to be my biggest hurdle was, was uh, being the, the young person that people might not take seriously. But fortunately, that wasn't, never really ended up being the case. People yeah. were really good here, students and the faculty. Nice. So when you were a grad student, had you had experience doing some of the things you'd be expected to do as a faculty, writing proposals, uh, maybe TAing or even teaching a little? Did you Were you leading any service activities, mentoring students? Like, were you doing some of those things or were, were you literally learning this all for the first time in that um, initial position? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I was really fortunate at Oregon State. I was one of just a couple of PhD students in the program. And um, I, so I was at the same level as everybody else in terms of research. I was doing my PhD research, a couple of side projects, you know, pretty aggressively trying to publish and, and get, you know, my name and my work out there. Um, but I did have the opportunity to teach. And so, I, you know, when I was a, a senior PhD student about to transition, hope, hoping to transition to a faculty position, I taught two classes at Oregon State. So here I was 24 and I had a class of 186 students and they were all mine, right? which was terrifying to sure. be honest. Um, but I did get that experience, some of that trial by fire. And I think, you know, if I, I could never say for sure, but I think that was one of the ways that I was competitive for faculty positions was that I had had that teaching experience and it went well. And so it was more of a known quantity. So when I moved to Colorado, um, 
I had, I had some teaching experience under my belt and I felt really confident about that part. So, you know, that was really helpful um, because I didn't have, there was, a, you know, 40% of my job that I didn't have to worry about quite as much as, as some, as some folks did. So that teaching experience was, was hard, but it was really helpful, especially in the early years. It makes sense. I mean, so the whole concept of this podcast we were talking about it is, is celebrating failure to celebrate kind of the transformative learning that comes through failure. Um, and so I, I believe in that philosophically, but if you're failing at teaching and failing at research and failing at service, yeah, you're learning a lot, but that's a hard thing to go through if all of those big life, big work life lessons are happening at the same time. So I, I think you're probably right that that probably had a, a huge impact on your overall just psyche and surviving those first a couple years yeah it's it's nice to fail at one thing at a time yeah well, <laughs> instead yeah. of everything at once maybe yeah <clears throat> i mean this is one of the challenges i think a lot of people hit in grad school and i think even starting up in academia it's just like a lot of us in most of our life are, are we're collecting data of you're good you're good you got gpa of 4.0 you got summa cum laude you're class president you're you're good and you keep getting this data and then you get to a certain point and it's like, now your paper's rejected. Eh, we're not interested in funding your proposal. Yeah, this isn't going to work. Your students don't like you. And you start getting a little bit of data that says, maybe you're not that great. And so going from all of the data says you're good to what we're just describing, everything you're seeing now is a struggle initially. That is a shift that, yeah, I just think is, is really challenging for, for most of us mm -hmm. to go through. Yeah. And you know, in my first teaching experience, I started to pick up on that because, you know, you told your grade and you get these, you know, you're in the PhD program. So you're, you're kind of riding high. And I think the best feedback I got was or the best feedback one can get, especially when it applies to teaching is from the undergrads in comp, you know, in their blind feedback that they give to you where their name is not associated mm -hmm. with it because then they'll tell you exactly what they really think yeah. if you suck they'll tell you in a hurry that you're no good right and it depends on how well you take feedback and what you're you know what if you're looking at it as a judgment of you or a way to improve um i remember some of my feedback of like you know Prof. Hollowell's chewing gum and it's incredibly distracting. And I hadn't even thought that I did it, right? Like, and now, now I would be mortified yeah. if I was listening to somebody up in the front of the room doing that. But I, it just wasn't something that crossed my mind. And, and you know, it's a bit embarrassing to to admit to have done that. But they they told me, and guess what? I never did again, right? And so, I mean, it's those those things. Like, if you if you want honest feedback, sometimes the undergrads are your are your best source, and they'll give you a bit of a self-awareness if you will if you're willing to listen to give you an ego check too oh big time <laughs> nothing is harsher than a than a college junior uh, or like an undergrad <laughs> honestly they're super observant like they'll tend to notice if you're having an off day or not right like if you're feeling sick or you're just not into it like they see that difference and they'll definitely mention it <laughs> yeah it's good it's a good barometer right yeah so I'd be interested as we're as we're talking about this kind of early in your career, starting up, figuring out the teaching research service and all kind of the items that were um, supporting a new faculty or required of a new faculty as they're starting up. Um, what kinds of either lessons learned did you have, or if you think back to some of the advice you got, what are some of the tips that you got at the time that made it a little bit better or a little bit easier to handle some of that transition? Yeah, I mean that's that's a. That's a good question. I, I, I remember back early in, in my time at, at CU, I had really bad role models and really good 
role models and mentors. Okay. And it took me a while to, to kind of what I perceived to be the good and the bad it took me a while to navigate what the good and the bad was as it related to me and what my own priorities were. So to give you an example, um, when I arrived uh, at Colorado, one of the first things they do is a new faculty orientation, right? So the, the dean of the college brings in the 20 some odd new, new professors or new faculty members and gives you a tour through, you know, what are the expectations and, you know, what are the resources and so on. And one part of that uh, tour from the dean was that we would go around to some of the labs of some of the star faculty, find out, well, how do they do things, right? And I won't mention any names, but we go do this tour and it's, it's a, a tour of people who have, you know, 16 PhD students working in their lab and, you know, these mega, you know, $10 million NSF grants where they're leading these, these huge teams. And so of course on day one, being young and impressionable and having no clue really what the expectation should be, I start thinking, you know, all right, I'm in this person's lab. They say, I bring, they, they told me, well, I bring my, my kids in on the weekend and we do tests in the lab. And I thought, I guess that's what one does at a <laughs> R1 school to, to make it through tenure. Um, now, keeping in mind, I only saw that, you know, this person is now a full professor and, and far beyond that part of their career. Now I look at that situation. I'm like, what a fool. Why would you do that? I mean, are you, are you, you know, living to work or working to live kind of thing? And so, you know, that was an example for me of, of what I consider now to be some bad role models. I mean, you don't have to do that to be successful in, in academia. You can, you know, you don't have to spend all of your time only doing work. Um, but to tell you a little bit about a, a good mentor I had, um, and I will mention a name this time, was uh, a guy named Jim Diekman. So uh, Jim has since retired, and, and I was super fortunate because when I, when I arrived, um, Jim was my mentor. Uh, he, I was sort of taking his faculty line uh, as he was retiring, and he agreed to stay uh, half-time, working one semester per year for a few years. And part of that was to mentor me and get me set up. So I wish, I only wish that everybody had that kind of, you know, situation. But Jim's thing was, he's like, look, you know, you got to look out for yourself because around here, nobody else is going to look out for your time and well-being for you, right? It's, people are going to push you. They're going to reward you for everything you achieve. They're going to give you critical feedback if you're below expectations, et cetera. Like you need to, you need to protect yourself. And so one of the things that he gave me as a piece of advice that, uh, I started to take maybe a little bit later, I wish I had taken it from the first day, as he said, you know, take a day a week that you don't schedule meetings on and it's your time. Like you, you think about what we get evaluated on, you know, and what we actually spend our time on. Are you getting evaluated on? Are you getting your papers out? Are you writing proposals and things like that? And, and that's not thing, it's not stuff you can do in the 15 minutes between meetings. You need time. And so I said, take the time, take your time, be protective of it. And then, you know, don't work all the time. And, and uh, you know, it's such a simple thing, but, you know, especially when you have the capacity uh, to work all the time and, and the personal situation, like, like I said, with no wife or kids or anybody else competing for the time where you can do that. Because he said, you know, you'll just burn out in a hurry. So, you know, there were good role models. There were bad role models around really good advice and bad advice. And it frankly, it took a while to, to filter through that and, and find out what the, you know, what was good advice for me, right? So to other, you know, it really is, depends on who's, who's taking the advice and, and what your situation is. But 
you know, that was early for me. You know, I, I made mistakes early I, where I was working way too much and I just fried and I knew like, you know, it took me some reflection, but I knew I was just doing bad, a lot of work, but it wasn't good. <laughs> it, I was, you know, there's a difference between doing a lot and, and doing impactful good work and, you know, finding some life balance there really helped to make the impact more, even if the time wasn't necessarily more, if that makes sense. Is that how you identified it? Was the quality of your work? Like you did, like for me, for example, like when I felt I've gotten my closest to burnout, it's more of sort of, I get agitated easily. It's more anxiety. It's, it's all of the sort of internal kind of just psychology kind of things more than the output. I didn't notice a huge difference in my work, but like what, how did, how did burnout uh, materialize for you? I think it was in terms of creativity, right? Which is a, a really hard thing to measure. But I think you, you know, any one of us who have been in in the field long enough, you know, when you've had your your creative moments and your good ideas, and when you're just doing stuff, right? And so I think I at that time I was I was doing a lot, but I wasn't thinking about new ideas and things. I didn't have the headspace really to think of new ideas. And frankly, right now in this moment of my life, I'm in the doing mode again, and I need to like <laughs> reset things and and get back to to you know thinking big thoughts. Um, but I, I think that's how I reflected on that was my first couple of ideas before I, when I transitioned from Oregon State to CU, I had the summer. And I didn't have a thousand things I had to do. And I thought of a lot of good ideas. And I realized in the next summer when I'm do, trying to do so many, you know, do so much stuff, I wasn't coming up with any new cool ideas. Mm-hmm. And I recognized that in my own work. And I, frankly, I think so much of what we do is about creativity. Even teaching, mm-hmm. research, frankly, even service to some extent is about whether or not we can be creative. And that's what really sacrificed for me is a creativity piece. So... Um... So it feels like you need sort of a reset from time to time, right? Or a, a chance to step back. And so one of one of the other, you know, guests that we had on, they talked about being able to use sort of the COVID um, kind of break that people, you know, everyone working from home, it, it brought them, gave them a, a different way of looking at their time um, to use that as a, a chance to sort of reset something. Were you able to do anything like that over COVID or did it just kind of get worse for you? You know, COVID... COVID was tough because in the beginning I was doing administrative work as well as, you know, the associate chair of the department and everything. And so I got caught up in, in doing all of that. And then there are a lot of reasons why I got, got into the, the doing mode and, and time got scarce on me. I wasn't being very good about saying no because I felt the need to help people out with different things. Um, but in my path, like in the history, um, the one big one for me has been sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And I know like not everybody enjoys, it gets to enjoy a sabbatical, but um, I looked back at that time, I'd just gotten tenure. And had I not taken a sabbatical, I don't know what, I don't, first of all, I don't know that I actually would have stayed in academia, to be honest. I, not that I didn't like it or anything, but I was just, it was things like ideas were getting stale and, and I just needed a refresh. And so there are a lot of ways that people do sabbatical. I didn't teach. I had a very mild plan that I knew was easily achievable and I took some time to take a break and think of ideas and that made all the difference. All my work in the last six years has been so much better and I can point back to sabbatical every single time. That's where that idea came from. I even had a book where I was taking notes over sabbatical. I'm like, I actually did these things in the last six years, right? They were big thoughts then and I did them. Um, But now I'm trying to do that. I'm, I'm also looking for, obviously looking forward to sabbatical, but I'm going to do, I do that in sort of a micro fashion too. So for example, for me in the summer, um, 
I'm going to take a month in the summer. And that's where I reset. It's for two main reasons. One, it resets the brain and I can be better at work, but also it allows me to have some dedicated time to family and where I'm not, you know, where my headspace is with them for the most part, not with, you know, doing work. So I think it's good to do even the micro ones, even if it's, you know, take the weekend and don't work, you know, one or two weekends a month and put the computer away and don't touch it or something like that. For me, that, that sort of break, whether it's a day, a month or a year, um, I need those things. Um, some people may not, but I definitely do. I maybe it's more of a, a Brian question, but I kind of do wonder how much the promotion and tenure process contributes to that. I, I will only speak for myself, but I would be interested to hear your thoughts, Brian, since you're in a similar spot as me. I feel like with the produce mentality that is necessary, um, a lot of my creative thoughts were focused on hitting singles, to use a baseball analogy. Just get on base. Get something that... Yeah, it advances what we know. It's maybe not the most exciting, the most out-of-the-box thing, but it is a little beyond what we had. Because um, I, I just think some of the more ambitious, really out-of-the-box ideas might take a year to get off the ground, another year to get data, and by the time we're looking at publishing, I, I cost me a couple years to get this sure. thing moving. Um, and maybe maybe this is only based on a myopic view of that's all I've seen thus far. I may, I may feel back there... Uh, well, I'm bringing this up to say I feel like since getting tenured about a year ago, not quite, um, and then also having the COVID era, I, f- I do feel like I've gotten more creative in this time, actually. And I've found more fun in the process of what I'm doing because I'm just i picking stuff that I just say, I think this is cool. I, th- I think this is what we ought to be studying. Um, I don't, Brian, does that resonate with you or do you have a different mindset on kind of how you approach your research? I mean, no, I, I think it's similar. So I think it's the, the tenure process by itself sort of rewards, uh, I don't know, risk aversion, so to speak. <laughs> like it rewards being safe in what you're doing, being safe and consistent in what you're doing, right? Like you can take risks and it, they can be crazy successful, but you could also take risks and now you didn't get anything out that year or something. Yeah. And you can't afford to do that with the way that most tenure processes are done because they're so metric oriented. And so I just feel like, from my perspective, I haven't taken a lot of risks. I'll come out and say that, right? I've done some of the safe things to make sure that publications go out and, you know, dollars come in. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a time when, you know, I can take more risks and think bigger than, than what I'm doing now. But I just, I think that's part of the tenure process. And I don't, I don't know of anyone that, you know, has, is really willing to take those kind of risks when it's putting potentially things that you've been working on for five or six years at risk, right? Of saying, oh, good try, but sorry, it didn't pan out. Yeah, I mean, especially if what you're doing is stud- is developing some kind of intervention. In, the wor- in my world, it happens to be technology. And if the thing doesn't work, then you say, well, did we at least learn something from it not working? If so, you might be able to do something right. with that and publish it. But if not, you know, the really cool idea that you know, no one's into, right? And so, so there's a, a couple of those that, I still would like to pursue and I'm kind of sidelined at the moment and I, I may get back into, but you know, year three, I thought this idea that was really cool. I still think it's cool, but I have no way of validating it yet unless I dedicate a PhD student or two or three to it. So, sure. you know, I, guys, I, I've had the same, the same experience the, the, especially the first through reappointment, the first three, four years of, of tenure is 
you know you've got you know you have targets to meet you know what the expectation you learn what the expectations are and you, and i think most people will take the safe path to get there um and and that's that's survival right the publisher perish and you know, there's not a lot of room in the academic system to take those those big risks. And, you know, I'll, I'll even tell you from an administrative perspective, one of the things that I've seen uh, this really tangible example of people being super safe is we have a hard time sometimes getting the junior faculties to spend their startup package. So like you've got two years of student support and they're like, well, I'm going to save it. Like, what are you saving it for? You need to do your work and get it out. And they're like, well, I'm worried that, you know, I won't get a grant or what have you and I need it later. And and so it's just a very tan and easy looking back in retrospect mm-hmm. as a more senior person and say you should spend it versus like hey I, I might need this you know every fiber of this to to make it um, I can tell everybody that you know it gets better because so I got promoted to full last year and now I feel really free like <laughs> nobody's judging my case anymore in any regard forget tenure I'm like now I, I don't even have anybody judging for full. Nobody's going to kick me out of here if I have a bad year or two or I don't get a proposal funded. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so that's the stage I'm at right now. So I promise you it, it does, you know, if you want it to be that way, it gets better. But don't let yourself stress out about even in later stages of your career about not getting a proposal, you know, in a two month period or something like that. You're going to have ebbs and flows. And and for, at least for me, I don't worry about that quite as much now. It's a bit liberating. To be there. So with the blueberry pie analogy, it's more blueberry pie, but perhaps less than maybe if you don't want blueberry pie for, you know, a, a half a year or a year, you can pass on it. Anyway, yeah, it's good. Matt, not, not get, I don't know. Pie, does, he, does he know about the blueberry pie analogy? <laughs> I don't know if he's heard this joke. So. The, the joke that we were <laughs> no. talking about last time was, was the idea of the promotion and tenure process is like a blueberry pie eating contest. Just eat more pie. It's not enough. Eat more pie, more pie, more pie. Um, and if you win, if you eat the most pie, the prize is more blueberry pie, right? It doesn't change. It's the same thing you've been doing, but it's more of it. And and I, I, like, I like to say that. that the problem was never the blueberry pie. It was the contest. The contest was the unpleasant part. Blueberry pie is delicious. I mean, as long as you're picking the version of pie you like, raspberry pie, apple pie, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, pick the, the research you love doing and then doing more of it is is invigorating and intellectually gratifying and all those good things. Yeah, you know, I... I've I've I haven't heard I've heard of that in, in a different way, right? But I think we, in a way, in in the pre tenure process, sometimes we unlearn how to take a break, right? It's like you get so used to just going, going, going that you know you just get into that. That's just your new normal, yeah. and you you never break free of it again. You have to kind of like reteach yourself to take a break. I'm working through that now myself. Of like, look, after five, no emails. And I, I think policy. back on the day before, like if I would wake up the next morning, I'm like, should I, would I have been happier had I answered emails last night or not? It's always not. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's good to do that, but take some time to unlearn some of those, those practices and hopefully, you know, maybe don't fall into the, that as a, as a, a norm all the time. Right. Sometimes I guess early you, you got to, yeah. but I remember answering questions at like two o'clock in the morning with my undergrad students. Because that's just like I was in work mode, and now I look back at that. I'm sorry, undergrads. There's no way you're going to hear from me at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I don't do that one. Yet. I no. would be curious though. So one of the things you talked about. So so being at a full professor level now, what do you use as kind of the professional yardstick to to gauge how you're doing? Do you measure a kind of success? Like, do you have a way of evaluating, even if it's not, am I pleasing someone else? Even if it's just 
the Matt Hollowell, you know, yardstick for success, like I'm talking a professional rather than personal level, what do you use or how, do, what do you measure now? Yeah, I, I think it's less of an objective measurement than it used to be. It used to be how many papers did I get out this year? Where did they get published? Are they in the top, you know, places in our field or, or not? And that sort of thing. Now it's, it's not quite as quantitative. It's definitely more qualitative. So I can look at a piece of work that I've done and and know, hey, did I make a bit? Is this is this important? Is this a big impact piece of work or or not? I try to only focus on the stuff that I, I think has the potential to be really high impact. Um, but I think it's more the satisfaction of of the work that comes out. So not the total amount of volume, but but what work comes out. And and really for me now, I've I've realized instead of my story being how much I published or how many grants I got. I can actually tell a story of like, what have we done that has changed something? And, and just as importantly for me now, it's our people using it. So my end user of my early work was people who are reading my papers. And let's be honest, I mean, it's this limited population of people who are actually reading your paper from start to finish. Right. And so I've worked a lot in the last couple of years of trying to get things out into industry where, where they're actually going to be used and not just not just in the archival science there too but also that other piece and so for me the the success bit is I, early in my career I figured out how to publish now in my career I'm looking to try to figure out how to get that knowledge in people's hands where people will actually do something with it especially the people on tools like are they really going to change what they do to to build things or did I write a paper that sits on the shelf that didn't change the way things are built and so for me like I couldn't tell you a number that I measure but that's my my you know, qualitative yardstick is how do I feel about the work that has come out? And, and that's a luxury of being, I think, past the bean counting that exists within academia. There's, there's no way around it when, I mean, I'm on the college's tenure and promotion review committee. It's a small group reviewing a lot of cases. And as much as we would love to say, we're looking at, you know, impact more broadly and everything, it, it reduces to number of papers and where they're published and amount of research dollars in a hurry because that's the only common denominator that you can go by. Otherwise, how do you compare one person's yardstick to another? Um, it's a tougher case to make. And for the junior folks, if you're going to take that big risk and try to do that one big high impact thing, my goodness, that's a tough, it's a tough road. And, and the tenure cases I've seen denied, unfortunately, are the ones where people tried to do something like that and failed in the early years and they didn't have enough foundation to build on. And so I hate to say like, you know, be conservative in the beginning, but until the game changes, yep. you have to, and you have to be strategic in, in academia. If you just say, oh, I'm going to stick to these, you know, core principles of myself and do things that way I want to do it, then be ready for, you know, the systematic consequences of it. Um, ideally, it's a balance between the two. Uh, we don't go so heavy in the other direction, but it's a reality until the system changes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it makes sense. So why don't we use this as an opportunity to fast forward a little bit. Uh, we talked about early on in the career and kind of surviving those years and figuring out how to balance uh, work expectations with life expectations when you don't have a, a wife and kids or a, a family in general. What about when you do? How did you, uh, how did you find the challenges associated with dividing your time amongst um, you know, wife, kids, family, friends, whatever other, other items? But I think family is a, a good lens to look through this at because it's you know, kind of top priority yeah that, that was the huge change for me um 
let's see, my, my oldest son uh, is six now, right, turning seven. So to give you a kind of an idea of where, where, where he was born, it was just, just before, just around tenure time for me. Um, it changed dramatically, right? And I think the big change for me is when I realized that, hey, if I'm working on the weekend, I'm not burning my time anymore. This isn't when I'd be out for a mountain bike ride or having a beer with a friend or what have you. This is, this is Rowan's time and Jack's time that I'm spending. So it's a different currency in that way when you know, I, I try to put it into that, that perspective. And I try to think about that. It's like after five, you know, in, during the weekends, um, I'm, I'm on borrowed time, not, you know, not my time. So, you know, I think that was, that was a big, that was a big kind of wake up call for me. It, my, my first son was born just about sabbatical time. So I had the fortunate, you know, op the opportunity there to do a bit of a reset and how I handled things. And so I changed a lot about, I made some mistakes, right? Where I was working too much and I, I regretted it. So it was that regret that was the wake up call. It's like, I just, I just, I, I missed an opportunity to do something with the kids when I was answering emails. And if I were to go back and do it again, I would have done something very different. Right. Hmm. Um, I think the thing for me that I had to really change was saying no a whole lot more. And that wasn't in my nature early. It was like, look, I want to be a good citizen of, you know, I want to review papers for these journals as many as, I, as they asked me to review. And I want to serve as an NSF panel reviewer and go to all the conferences and, and, you know, it's do all the service assignments in the, in that they, they'll, they'll throw at me. Um, and now I, I say no more than I say yes. And sometimes I still feel bad, but that goes away quick. <laughs> Your feeling bad is, is short-lived compared to the regret of spending time, like, you know, doing something like that with, instead of spending time with your family. So, you know, I, 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 an example for me is I looked at paper reviews and I was doing that a massive number before I, I, uh, I went on sabbatical that first time. And now I think, all right, look, I'm going to, I'm going to submit five papers or whatever it is for a given year. They're going to each get three reviews. I owe the system 15 reviews, not a hundred. Right. And so that's kind of how I recalibrated on some things is saying no a lot more. Um, and then also, the, the big change for me was I really kind of like focused myself on like, what's my passion? Like, what's my thing that I'm going to do? And I'm a, my research is in safety. My like career goal is to move the industry towards eliminating fatalities, not zero injuries. Like, I don't think we'll ever get to zero, but z like zero fatalities would be where I'd like to see it go. And that's my thing. So I'm interested in other areas of important things in society, but that's like, that's my thing. And so now I can stay, I, I try to stay true to that that focus instead of, you know, having passion for a hundred things and being spread thin where I'm really not passionate about anything. Like there's my thing. That's what I do. I really want to be excellent at that and, and not, you know, I'll help with other things, but that's, that's my, my identity. So that helps me say no to some things that are outside that vision and say yes to the things that matter the most within, within that vision. But, um, you know, that's, that's recently, that's been my big thing is, is trying to navigate, you know, using my time with the family and protecting it, uh, instead of letting it slip where I'm, I'm working too much. And I still do it where my wife's like, you know, it's seven thirty at night. Like, what are you doing on the computer? And she keeps me in check, right? She's like, what are you doing on the computer? And it's my wake up moment of like, Oh yeah, I'm on the computer. And I shut it down. I, I move on. Um, and that's not to say there aren't, you know, times here and there that you do need to do work late, but I try to not make it a habit. 
is it when you when you find yourself in those situations is it you're doing the stuff that contributes to those goals you've just mentioned reducing fatalities to zero or do you get caught up in oh there's an email that just popped up or the other minutiae that i'm assuming is probably not directly contributing to that and could otherwise be cut out i guess i'm getting at like do you have the discipline to conscientiously think about what will support this long-term goal and what's just you know kind of fluff yeah, I mean, some sometimes I'm I'm good about it. I mean, most of the time when I'm, I'm working late, to be honest, it's there's somebody else who needs something yeah. who I don't want to let down, right? So it's somebody like a close colleague of mine who's who's asked for something, or a student who needs a letter of recommendation, and I'm like, I know I really have time for this, but I, I'm not going to say no, right? It's 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 a it's it's more it's not an obligation that has a negative connotation but it's 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 something i'm going to do i'm not going to tell you no um and so i find myself doing those quite a bit trying to more often than not trying to catch up on those things there's usually a laundry list of of that sort of thing especially letters uh that's now my life is like all right somebody needs a promotion and tenure review at their university well people have done that for me so i need to do that for them and that's i I recognize that and so I think that's the kind of thing that pulls my attention, you know, in the in the off time, if you will, uh, more than anything else. And it's catching up because I, do, again, do so much doing during the day that I don't set aside time to do those things that I know I need to do. I don't know about you guys, but writing a letter for a student or, you know, doing a review of a classroom or what have you, um, it's almost like an extracurricular. And I, I realize in myself, I got to build in time. If that's part of my job and that's something I care about, I need to build in regular time for it and not schedule a Zoom meeting. <laughs> um, but I'm bad about that. And I, I know that I need to get, definitely need to get better. Yeah. I mean, I, I am too. We, we talked about this in a, a prior episode, but it's almost the, the cost of saying yes to some of these things. Like if I get an email from a student that says, uh, professor, I got a, I got a D on this project, but I think I deserve an A. Can you explain why the cost of them writing professor? I got a D, but I think I deserve an A. Can you explain why pretty low? Like that cost them maybe five minutes. <laughs> the cost of my response to that is extraordinarily high. Um, now what you've just described writing letters for promotion and tenure, I think is a, in some ways, a, a more necessary or more merit driven i think they've they've put in more effort in their career to probably justify getting a letter but still in the request that you're getting can you write a letter for whoever's name you saying yes to that request is a whole lot more cost on your end than it was to ask you for this request of a letter well it's true i mean in some of those costs you you need to you you need to bear right but there are some like i look back at some of the emails i used to answer from I'll use undergrads as another example. I keep throwing them under the bus, but it'd be a question like, hey, I missed class on Tuesday. Did we cover anything important? And I would actually respond to that email oh of like, oh yeah, here's where, not not like here's a lecture of what no. it is. But now if somebody were to send me that email, I'd be like, what kind of dumb question is that? Of course we covered something important or otherwise I wouldn't have covered it. And then you need to get the notes from somebody else. Actually, nowadays, I just don't even respond. Yeah. I'm like, you know how they say there are no, there are no, uh, no bad questions? That's a bad question. Yeah. That's a dumb question. Don't ask it. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, I, I used to get caught up in, and that's one of those things that's a, I mean, that's no cost for the student. I mean, it's, right. it's like a negative cost. Like I'm not going to show up to class and instead I'm going to ask this, this dumb question. Yeah. And so anyways, I, I mean, some things like, Hey, promotion and tenure review process, that's important. And you can't say no to every single one of them, but you know, I mean, or yes to every single one of them. 
but that's an important thing to do. And, and so I'm okay sinking that. Even if it's not a big cost for them to ask for it, it's something that's really important. And so really I'm, the I'm cost of that it. is putting together the tenure package, right? Like someone spent all the time in putting together this package for you to look at. So, I mean, it's... Yeah. And all the work they've done right. and, yeah. and everything, all the contributions yeah. they've made. And what, you know, here I am spending a couple hours writing a letter. I could do that, right? right. But I don't set time aside for it. Right. And That's, I'm sure everybody has that. Regardless of your stage yeah. of your career, what we do is we have our things that we need to do. And then we have our extracurriculars that don't fit a part of the time. And here we are now working outside of normal time, right? Yep. I guess where I was, yeah, this all makes sense, but I think all these are very good points. I guess where I was going in my, my comment about the cost of it is my understanding. I've never been on the other side of the tenure process, um, reviewing it. But my understanding is in the letters that are written, they're two-page letters, and they'll say all these different accolades about the person, and hopefully, as you say, Brian, the, the P&T package is well-written, so that makes the writer's job easy and all these things. And they write this letter, but I also understand that the main important thing is that letter has a sentence that says, this individual would get would be tenured at my institution. So it also feels like, <laughs> well, if there's one sentence that matters, you know, it's almost like just, just almost an NSF collaboration uh, style. Just write a one sentence letter. Yeah, this well, person would get it. Or no, they wouldn't. <laughs> that's, that, it, it, that's what I thought, too, until I got on the other side of this. Like, hey, okay. I, you really just want these people to vary. Like, they're well-known people with the titles and everything that are needed to check the boxes. And they say, yes, this person should get tenure. The, the reality that I've come to see, at least at the University of Colorado, is um, those are considered bad letters because they're, they don't offer any depth or any insight. A good letter is this particular piece of work using this particular methodology is innovative for these reasons. They've made, they've made sustained impacts in these ways. Not they've written this many papers, not a regurgitation of the CD. Hmm. Okay. And so there's a big difference between writing a good letter and a bad letter because, I mean, it would only take me... An, at most an hour to write a bad letter because all I have to do is count the number of things in the CV, which somebody else has probably already counted for me. But to write a good one is you really do need, especially with people you don't know, right? I mean, that's the whole point of an external review is you don't have a conflict of interest with them. You might have heard of their work. You got to dig into it and, and read some papers and stuff. And now we're talking about a lot more time. Sure. And then you got to cast a judgment and realize, oh, the way I frame this and even people will read between the lines of, right. well, they just being nice and, and you get the idea. So there's a lot of nuance that I wasn't expecting. Um, and now that I'm both writing and reviewing those, um, you know, it takes a long time to write a good letter. So kudos to those people who are out there who have spent the time for all of the three of us on the on the call writing letters of various kinds. Not me yet. Well, somebody Soon. will, yeah. and in a, in a hurry, Brian. Are you free in the summer? No. <laughs> <laughs> but the, seriously, the people who write the letters—I mean, that's that's a big time sink, and you know, it, it goes kind of unthanked because you'll never know who wrote your letters. Right. The department chair will say thanks for the letter, and that's it. And so, and not that you need a thank a thanks for that, but but really, those it's a it's a thankless job that's super important to do it to do a good job. But somebody will write you a good letter, Brian. I promise you that much. So as we start to transition out of the topics of kind of uh, uh, time management, I do want to kind of give you the final thought on this, Matt. If you look back on your career, I mean, do you have either thoughts of the one thing you wish you had done differently or the one thing, thank God I did this thing and I'm so, that's the one thing that saved me? Like any just overarching takeaway that you might suggest or failure you experienced as it relates to managing life and work? Yeah, I mean, I think for life and work, there's there are definitely periods in my life where I worked way too much and I regret it. Right? I mean, 
the older you get, the more you wish you had the time when you were younger back. I mean, I'm 38 years old, so who am I? I'm not 90 talking about that. But my point is, like, you do wish, like, hey, I wish I had taken some time there when I, you know, when I was wor working through the weekend every, every uh, you know, weekend of the term. The, the thing I, I think, the piece of, of advice that I would give in terms of the early years, in terms, you know, thinking about your own work is never compromise, like, the quality or integrity of your work don't put out a bad paper sometimes we know when we've got one that's like ah this might squeak by or whatever that one extra paper won't will do you more harm than good mm -hmm. if you put it out there and i i there are a couple that i go back and i'm like i look at and there are a few things i'd like to scratch off of my cv mm -hmm. right and and you know, I, I learned that. And so now I don't try not to repeat those, those mistakes, but that was one thing is just never do a marginal piece of work because unfortunately that's oftentimes what people remember. They're like, ah, it wasn't so good. Um, the one thing I think, you know, thing I learned that went well was taking a proper sabbatical. It's amazing to me, you know, again, like I said, it, it's not, everybody's going to get one. So I, for those who listen, who, who don't get one, uh, my apologies for mentioning it, but you know, if you do have that opportunity to take a sabbatical, take it. It's your time to open up headspace and be creative. And it is an investment, right? There's a reason in many ways, a reason it exists is it allows you to be better, better for the next six years. So you're going to be better for six years with a year break than you would in seven years with no break. And, and I, the one thing I would, would say is I did sabbatical really well. I did take a break and I, I did refresh and I have a lot of colleagues who work even harder over sabbatical and they come back even more burnt out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why did you do that? <laughs> so I'm, I'm gearing up for my next one in a, in a year or so from now and I'm going to try to do the same thing and come back refreshed. So question for you and one thing that you said right there. So um, you expressed a little bit of regret for you know, some working too much in some in some cases now you've been very successful at what you do so if you had a chance to go back and work less would you still be as far or impactful as you are right now would you be willing to sacrifice perhaps the few publications maybe or a grant that came out of that or maybe a little bit of notoriety in order to spend you know more time maybe with your family or doing doing other things that's that's a really good question. You know, I will never know exactly in in retrospect, but I think the thing that I would get 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 at here is, you know, let's say you're writing papers or whatever, and you're going crazy for tenure. There's a very small difference between twenty one papers and twenty, right? But there's a massive difference between doing twenty and having some free time and keeping yourself happy or whatever and not going for the 21st or the 22nd or the 23rd. So I think, you know, it wouldn't be a matter of like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pull out 40% of my time. But I think it's like, look, instead of trying to do, you know, quite so much work, doing just a little bit less and just, it's like opening a bottle cap on a, on a soda bottle where you just let a little bit of that pressure out. Now it's manageable and not ready to explode. And so that's, I think what I mean is, you know, if you take a weekend off, your your work life is not going to all of a sudden go down the drain. It it just won't, right? So instead, do that every once in a while. Don't do it every single, you know, don't just cut a whole ton of stuff out and and then hope for the best, but but take a little bit out from time to time and don't try to to do everything. There's a great talk. I I, I don't know who who did this, but they they go up to the front of the room and they they fill this bucket 
with ping pong balls, right? I don't know if you all have seen this, but then they ask, is the bucket full? They fill it full of ping pong balls. And everybody says yes. And then the person in the room takes a bucket of sand and pours it in there where the sand fills in the gaps, right? And then the person says, and it's right full to the very top with sand. And the person says, is it full? And everybody says yes. And then he comes with a bucket of water and he pours the water in. And that's just what we do over time is we just keep putting more and more and more in. And I'm, I guess what I'm talking about here is like just taking some of that pressure out of the system. Maybe drain the water, right, or something. And it sure. still will appear, you know, full enough and you'll make enough of an impact to be successful. But you'd also maybe a little happier along the way too. Okay. Good. Well, this is great feedback. I think this is excellent stuff. Uh, several of these strategies I'm going to probably try to take with me as I recalibrate a little bit here for the next six years. This wasn't a sabbatical, don't get me wrong, but, but it's definitely been a shift in the way I've just looked at work and, and life, both post-tenure, but also in sort of the, the COVID era and that kind of thing. We've got some fun questions, and these are more geared towards uh, learning Dr. Hollowell the person as opposed to Dr. Hollowell the scholar. Um, and so there's no right or wrong answer. We're just kind of looking to, to learn how you would approach these different questions. So there's four short questions. Just interested to hear your thoughts. First one, in this podcast, we celebrate failure, right? Because of all the lessons we can learn from it. And we think that's historically been something that in academia we have not uh, valued as much as I think it might deserve. So I'm curious to hear a micro failure. What I mean by this, in the last week, it can be really stupid or little. What's something you did wrong in the last week and what did you learn from it? Oh my goodness. What did I do wrong in the last week? That's a great question. And it can be personal, professional. It can be some stupid thing on a software or whatever you do. I mean, any level. It just helps us to learn like what, what goes on in your week and what goes wrong for your day-to-day -day kind of life. Um, so, I mean, I, it's so many I can't even pick one, right? <laughs> You know, I think for me, I was I, I rush a lot. I try to do a lot of things like through the time that I have constrained everything to. And so I don't know if you all have done this, but I uh, I was going through in, in my typical pastime, just deleting emails that I don't need. And I went through and I deleted a couple because I was just swiping without really thinking that I actually did need. And then I go back and somebody's asking me for a follow up. And I'm like, oh, what a jerk. Like I didn't, I, I deleted it. I actually know that I deleted it, right? Because <laughs> I can kind of remember back to that moment, but I shouldn't have. So it's just a moment of like not being mindful. And I think that's a lot of what I have, you know, in terms of my, my errors, if you will, are these, I'm doing something without paying entirely, you know, full attention to what I'm doing because I'm rushing and it's part of the, like, I'm do, trying to do too many things uh, problem. But yeah, that's, that, that's one I can think of uh, right off the top of my head is, I, so I feel bad to whoever it was, I won't mention your name, sorry about the email that I deleted. <laughs> I didn't tell you that I deleted it, I replied, but that's actually what I did. <laughs> that's a great response though, because we talked earlier, you said, I've got this focus of what I, where I wanna have impact, I'm assuming email is not the core contributor to that impact, so that becomes a thing that, that goes, takes a backseat, but, there are there's a cost to that too. I mean, there are certain just practical, and so we're we're discussing ones. So that's great. Absolutely. Okay. Next one. Complete the following sentence. When I'm not working, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than blank. Oh man. No, I know what I should say. Yeah. I should say, you know, I I I I, I want to be like cuddling with my kids, but I love mountain biking, right? So if it's me, the person, like, what do I enjoy doing as an activity? I love mountain biking because it's exercise, right? It gets it gets my head straight. It puts me in a better mood. 
Uh, I enjoy it. It's like this like real life video game thing. So, I mean, that's that's what I grew up doing. I was I was a swimmer through college and everything. And mountain biking's my my you know more recent activity. So, I would say that. And then you know that's my real answer. And then my my answer that has the warm and fuzzies is I'd love to spend you know cuddle with the kids or whatever. But I get a lot of that. I don't get a lot of mountain biking these days. <laughs> that's a great response. <laughs> All right, next one we've got. If you had a time machine and you could go backward or forward to anywhere in time for two hours, right? When and where would you go? Oh, man. I wish you had asked me this question so I could think about it for a day. That's a great this is question. More, I, I like getting <laughs> it's around. Huh? You got to answer quick. <laughs> back. I, I, all right. I'm thinking back in time. So who knows what's going to happen in the future, right? This is telling in and of itself, by the way. Right, I, I right. like I like seeing who goes forward and backward. This yeah. is already yeah. Part of the Not joy many go forward. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I, 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 it's it's hard to get me at a loss for words, but to go back in time, I don't know. I I think I think I go back to like a really cool concert, like a you know, like go see like Michael Jackson in concert or something in this heyday or something that you just, you know, something fun, something not that, where, where it's not socially distanced. Right. <laughs> and you're in the midst of a bunch of people who aren't going to get each other sick as well as sick as COVID would make it. I, I don't know that for some reason, the concert came to mind cause I haven't gone to one in so long and I, I've been wanting to, but yeah, go see Michael Jackson. It's like thriller tour or something. Not the one where he catches his hair on fire, but, right, but right. one where he doesn't get injured. Yeah, that, <laughs> I don't know. That's why that's what came to mind first. I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> well, that, there again, I think maybe I'm maybe I'm forcing a, a narrative. But this also seems appropriate for the work-life balance. It doesn't have to be. I'm going to go to this scholarly moment that'll make me sound professorial. It could just be. This would just be fun. I just if I yeah. I should have. I should have sucked up to some senior professor yeah, in our field, no, right? right? Like I'd love to go to so and so's like purifying keynote address. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last one that we've got. Um, what is your favorite part of your career that has no place on your CV? Or favorite Ooh. part of the job that you can't really list on the CV? Favorite part of the job? I don't know. I, I think the, the one of the biggest joys is watching, you know, being at a PhD student's defense when it's like you're a student, right? It's, it's almost, there, there's this kind of academic family thing where you see like you've got, you've got your academic children and their children, your grandfather or whatever. Uh, I mean, that's so much work and so much, you know, personal effort plugged in and it culminates at one moment. I find it hard to find anything else that has that carries that much meaning for, for other people. And it's not my own uh, certainly not my own defense that that in a way was almost anticlimactic but watching some of the students especially those who uh, didn't have an easy path or didn't have that highest GPA and they ended up surprising everybody like those are my favorites and and they're not I mean I guess they're kind of technically on the CV but that's my favorite academic moment is like especially when they surprise themselves with how well the defense goes after they pick <laughs> apart like every detail yeah. of what they think is going to go wrong and then they just knock it out of the park. Oh boy, that's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a fun part of the job. Cool. Well, thanks. This was fun. Any other thoughts anyone else wants to mention before we sign off? You know what I should have just mentioned was this podcast. It's not going to go on my CV, but boy, it's great. Oh, that would have been really <laughs> Yeah, no one said that yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much for being here. This was was fun as always to chat with you. Fun to to uh, learn from some of your lessons and that kind of thing. Hopefully, for you all as listeners, hopefully you got one or two or three tidbits out of this that maybe you can apply. And if you're in sort of the any of the phases in life that we've discussed here, hopefully some of the strategies may apply. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to catch you on the next episode of Office Error.